Hello students, this is the audio lecture from module one. If you haven't done so already, please print out the study guide notes on Google Classroom and uh, the remainder of the lecture here will go um, through them. Please remember to handwrite everything that you're listening to. You can always rewind what I'm saying and be sure to submit them on the due dates according to the syllabus. So let's get started. Chapter one, section one, understanding our past. Now it's really important to get a definition before we kind of jump into some of the, con the content. So let's talk about history as a subject. I would define history as the follows, the mathematics of human interaction. If we start looking at it as more of a science and less as a giant story, you'll see not only a few things happening. One, you'll start to see the importance of it. Two, you will be able to understand that it's kind of difficult like other sciences to measure. And what's different about this type of science as opposed to physics or biology is that it's based on human experience, experiences that are recorded by other human beings. Now, I don't know if you ever heard a friend talking about what they did last weekend or some crazy story, but there's a tendency for all of us, and we all do this, to kind of have what I call the, the telephone game syndrome, the the recollection of events are somehow warped or at least emphasizing certain aspects to the particular person's narration and you might lose some of the details so as a, as a subject it is very 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 difficult to study so when we talk about the challenges of studying history we have to really as historians analyze what we call the credibility of sources. Now, what is the word credibility? I want you to circle that word right there. What that basically means is the believability. That's not a real word, but that might help you understand what that word means. And when we're talking about the believability, so to speak, of these sources, a historian has to act like a detective and have as many different sources to kind of solve the mystery um, of, of events that occurred prior to their existence in many cases. There are two types of evidence that historians use, generally speaking, and you should keep note of them because the regents likes to kind of have a multiple choice question or two on them. The first one is the primary source. A primary source is basically a first-hand account. It's basically an account coming from an individual who has experienced the event that is being told. So your friend talking about a party or going to Hawaii um, and talking to you about their experiences, that would be considered a primary source. Okay, An artist that is uh, sketching something that they, they see in real time, that sketch itself would be a primary source. So pretty much any... Um, author that has experienced the event in question, that would be considered a primary source. Now, a secondary source is a piece of evidence that is recorded by someone who is not experiencing a particular event, but is getting their information from a primary source. So that, there's where the sequence comes in. You, you must have primary sources in order to get secondary sources. Your textbook, for example, would be a good example of a secondary source. Um, I am a good example of a secondary source because I'm not living these experiences, but I am recounting them based on my own understanding of history. 
Now, the purpose of studying history, what's the point of it? Well, the idea is, and I'm sure you've heard the cliche before, um, we are, we're doomed to repeat our mistakes. So a careful analysis of history might also help us kind of predict things that might happen in the future. For those of you who are interested in business, a lot of economists make their, their money or their profession, their entire livelihood, on anticipating or calculating uh, or projecting what might happen in the future with markets. So the more we kind of understand the cycles of human interaction, the more we can kind of help ourselves economically, politically, and socially. For those of you who are not interested in any of these fields, a good thorough understanding of history might also help prevent you from being kind of easily duped or easily led astray by um, media or other forms um, of information. I know you all have a smartphone and you're all on a lot of websites and right now you probably don't care about anything that's going on but I guarantee you in the next 20 years or so you guys are going to be the one uh, the movers and shakers of this world and if you don't have a good thorough understanding of it you will be taken advantage of. I have an old grouchy uncle that um, has often said there are three types of animals on this planet. There are wolves, there are sheepdogs, and then there are sheep. I'm hoping that you all won't become sheep by virtue of your ignorance and your lack of understanding of the cycles and patterns of other people taking advantage of other people. So, let's move on. B. Prehistory. What we define prehistory as is, a, is basically a time that predates recorded history, and that's really important. I want you to understand that um, human beings have lived thousands and thousands of years before we had some sort of organized linguistic system or some sort of writing system. So we kind of historians talk about prehistory as the history before written history. So obviously there's going to be some sort of ambiguity that goes along with it. That's that fancy word right underneath that. What ambiguity means just means um, that the sources are kind of unclear. There's a certain shroud of mystery that envelopes the entire of sequence of events during this particular time. Why? Because we don't have the ability to kind of get accounts from people there. We have cave drawings, we have uh, artifacts, we have uh, walls and buildings. So we did the best we could, and of course skeletal remains, we've done the best we could with those um, concrete uh, forms of evidence to kind of paint a picture of how did people live prior to uh, societies and settlements. So there are a lot of clues um, that points to how prehistoric man lived, and most of them come from East Africa. With the discovery of tools in Tanzania, all the way to a hominid skull in 1959 by Mary Leakey, um, we kind of get an understanding of how early man was. Now what a hominid is, it's kind of bolded for you, is basically a human-like uh, creature. And the reason why I say human-like creature is to distinguish it from apes. I know you've probably heard of the theory of evolution and we descended from apes. Um, although uh, the theory of evolution is quite strong and there's a lot of evidence to support that, it does not imply that we directly came from apes. The understanding is that mankind has evolved from an ape-like creature. So there's that's a little bit of a misnomer or um, you know people usually kind of misinterpret that. So a hominid is a human-like skull. Um, in 1974, we got a person named Donald Johansson. They're going to find pieces 
of hominid skeletons in Ethiopia. So now we have some remains and tools in Tanzania. We got hominid skeletons in Ethiopia that kind of, if you're a good detective, you can make an inference that we've traveled. There's some sort of migratory pattern. Now, animals, of course, travel as well, but the fact that we're able to build things like uh, hammers and picks or some sort of crude um, arrowheads not only indicates intelligence, but also indicates the ability and the dexterity uh, to create them, such as the opposable thumbs. We're not going to get into it here, but I can't tell you how much scholarly work is dedicated just to the, um, the hand itself and its impact on our development as a human species. Anyway, let's continue. Um, from this kind of understanding of evidence, we have gathered based on skeletal remains that there are a variety of different hominids, human-like species. The word homo in Latin means man. So each kind of word you can see has man in it. So you have homo habilis means handyman, and they were around two million years ago. Then you have homo erectus, meaning upright man, uh, two million years ago. And of course, we have what you probably have heard of before, homo sapiens, us, about 100,000 to 250,000 years ago. And we do this by dating the skeletal remains of these various species. So we could say with pretty relative certainty that human beings have existed about a quarter a million years ago. From this evidence, we've come up with some several theories as to where exactly we came from, and there's this understanding called the out of Africa theory, where it posits that most man develops in on the continent of Africa, and because of our ability to migrate long distances, we were able to kind of stretch to the far regions of the planet. So, there were two types of hominids that were c competing for survival at this time us, Homo sapiens, and what we call the Neanderthal. And the reason why we were able to beat out the Neanderthals, not because we were smarter, not because we were stronger, not because we were faster necessarily, it was because we were able to travel long distances. Our ability to move upright and walk long, 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 long distances allowed us to have the endurance to outrun or outpace not only predators, but climate change that it might have eradicated our species. So you could say that mankind has developed its evolutionary edge is not because of intelligence necessarily, but because of our endurance and our ability to travel long distances. We are a traveling species, and we will understand a little bit more uh, on that in the next section. Chapter 1, Section 2, Turning Point, Neolithic Revolution. So prehistory can be divided into two eras, the Old Stone Age, also known as the Paleolithic period, and the New Stone Age, also known as the Neolithic period. So we're going to talk about some characteristics between the two eras and what's the big deal between them. So why do we need to know what the Neolithic Revolution is? Well, let's first talk about the early era. Human beings living within the Paleolithic period, that is between 2 million BC and 10,000 BC, were mostly nomadic. What does that word mean? It basically means that they were traveling constantly. The main idea was to follow prey food sources. If the, the, the food was moving, so were they. Their settlements were usually temporary. They were easily collapsible. They were even in some cases able to carry their shelters. Um, they, in other, some tribes, they were even just looking for caves or dwellings that are naturally given to them by the environment. 
Um, they did have some sort of technology, but it was very crude. And you can highlight that word. Crude is very um, simple, uh, archaic, raw. Um, if, if these were hammers, they were just basically you know, big sticks, maybe with some rocks attached to them. If there were arrowheads, they're very, 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 very simplistic. In many cases, they're just kind of triangular shaped rocks. In other words, we're not seeing any form of iron making or any other type of alloy or metal being used. So there's nothing really sophisticated about these form of tools. They're just, again, tools that could feasibly be found uh, by the environment themselves. And much like the technology being primitive, so were their religious beliefs. And many of these tribes uh, living in this period believed in some form of animism, which means a basic belief in any geographical feature having connections or some sort of supernatural power. So, for example, the people living in the Paleolithic period would look at a river or a mountain or a cave or a tree, and they would believe it to be either the gods themselves or they had some sort of connection to um, the outside world in which we experienced. So animism can be described as just a basic universal belief that we're not alone, that some sort of external force or forces have power over us. But it's not exactly uh, clear-cut, and it's not exactly specific enough to be in, you know, considered a religion per se. But keep that in mind as a concept because it's constantly referenced in the Regents' exams. Um, now, what's the difference between Neolithic uh, period and the Paleolithic? Well, what changes basically is in the Neolithic period, human beings begin to to farm and they understand how to settle. And with farming comes a, a few things. It, it comes with permanent settlements. It comes with a change in diet. It, be, it comes with the population growth. And because of that, it's going to significantly have an impact on the human species. In the Paleolithic period, you can understand if we're constantly on the move, we're not going to have a large swaths of Homo sapiens running around because you're not going to have time to procreate. You're not going to have time to kind of live long enough uh, to, to, to see uh, multiple generations uh, unfurl. So Neil, during the Neolithic period, when we start to farm, People are standing more still. Uh, people are getting more organized. Houses are becoming uh, permanently built. Um, that will give some sort of time for people to do other things other than just survive. We're moving away from walking dead-esque apocalyptic scenarios and more to um, what we call domestication of plants and animals. Um, if you don't have to spend most of your life running away from animals but somehow can uh, train the animals to stay with you, you can utilize your time in other ways. So, you know, mankind is planting seeds in the ground. They're raising uh, animals such as cows and pigs and other primitive forms of livestock for slaughter, um, and that will significantly change their diet, and it will lead, again, you should please note this, uh, to a proliferation or an increase of uh, the human species. And that's really what's going to set us off into the topic of history. Early Neolithic villages are start gonna, no surprise, going to start sprouting up um, through Africa all the way north. Uh, the earliest being Kadalahoyuk, which is modern-day Turkey, to Jericho, modern-day Israel. Uh, we will talk about these later. Um, 
a lot of their villages are still going to be small again because you know it's not like night or day we go from small scattered nomadic uh villa you know tribes in the paleolithic era to big giant cities but there's going to be a dense population uh living in these villages there's even going to be some evidence of walls again that's important because now mankind is no longer uh spending the rest of their entire time just surviving now we're having this idea of protection not only protection of themselves from other tribes and animals but from the weather and climate so mankind is starting to um manipulate the world and geographical features to meet their needs which is really big that denotes intelligence that denotes where we're starting to solve problems instead of being reactionary um, to them um, and most importantly we're gonna have the early development of a patriarchal society which again is bolded noted it is uh, the beginning of a life that will be determined by men the word pater comes from the Latin word father. So pater, father, 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 father. Over time, we use the word father, but we're beginning to see a world that is going to be dictated and determined primarily based on males. Sorry, ladies. All rules, all customs, all culture and tradition will be written and enforced by men. Right, wrong, or indifferent, this is a very unique aspect to most human societies and will have a positive as well as negative implication for gender interaction and we will learn more about that and uh, the 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 plight or the efforts of women gaining equality up until as recently as the 20th century we will talk more about that in later audio lectures of course when mankind started to settle they had more time to do other things such as develop new improved technology so things like pottery things to hold food or water and clothing that which will protect from the weather will not only significantly um, be a factor in increasing the population but also the diet of human beings if you think of it this way the more protein human beings are able to ingest the more that our muscles the most important one being the brain is going to be nourished, which will increase or have a, a direct correlation to the amount of thinking that we will be able to do. So our thinking power uh, is correlated to the amount of diet that we eat over long, long, long periods of time. Of course, uh, things like calendars are going to really help um, mankind to de determine when to farm and when not to farm. So really our calendar is based on early harvest seasons. Uh, the, the two primary uh, seasons in mind come uh, winter and summer. If you think about Christmas, the whole basis of Christmas comes from an early, early, early pagan winter festival. Halloween is an early harvest festival. So the ability of organizing or identifying time uh, allowed human beings to know exactly when to farm and when not to farm. And of course that goes along with new farming tools as well as techniques. And we're not just talking about simply planting seeds in the ground. I don't know if you've ever helped your parents garden or if you've ever touched a garden tool in your life, but farming is not exactly uh, easy and I would love to see human beings now saturated with technology give their best shot at farming I don't know how many of us would would not, would survive if we had to fend for ourselves so techniques contributed to the survival and the success of early mankind 
Chapter 1, Section 3, Beginnings of Civilization. So we talked about the differences between the Paleolithic and the Neolithic Revolution, and from there we kind of start to have a tremendous amount of other civilizations start to happen. So today we're going to be discussing what really makes up a civilization and like the general characteristics of many others that we're going to get more in depth with. So where do civilizations uh, mostly form? Around water sources. We're talking about rivers, oceans, seas, lakes. Why? Because of the benefits of being near that resource. We all need water to survive. We need water to bathe and stay healthy. Disease is a big contributing factor for the deaths of thousands and thousands of people. We also need water for farming, which also in turn helps us develop food. Livestock needs water. So the benefits of being near a water source is tremendous. So no, most civilizations, even today, if you took a satellite photograph of the United States and every single person uh, had an infrared dot, right, next to them, if you want to know where most of the people are going to be in the United States, they'll be hugging either the East Coast or the West Coast. There's not many, many people um, in the middle country. And that goes with Europe as well as uh, Africa as well as Asia and other continents as well. So this is something that's very human to be near water source. For example, the Sumerian civilization will be formed near the Tigris and Euphrates rivers. Tigris is spelled T-I-G-R-I-S and Euphrates is spelled E-U-P-H-R-A-T-E-S. So we have the Tigris and Euphrates rivers. With the Egyptian civilization, we have what we call the Nile River. In the Indus civilization in India, we will have the Indus River. And in the Shang civilization in China, we will have the Huanghe, H-U-A-N-G, next word, H-E River. And there's going to be, of course, exceptions, especially in the Americas like the Incas, the Olmecs, and the Mayan civilizations. Those are going to be, of course, developing really complicated irrigation systems that will trap the moisture in the mountain regions of South America and Central America to utilize water. So even though they're not near rivers, you're going to have them being next to water sources, as I've mentioned before. So like a cake, Historians have come up with basic ingredients for civilizations, and below uh, are, is a chart of all the ingredients that make up a civilization. And like baking, you can either uh, add more ingredients than others, and it will change the composition or the taste of a cake or a cookie or something. And very true to this metaphor, civilizations are the same way. So some civilizations are going to have more of an emphasis on certain ingredients than others, or they're going to have different types of the same ingredient, right? Between salt and pepper or sugar and cinnamon, they're going to change the taste of each civilization. Let's So let's go with each ingredient and we'll talk about some of the positive implications or consequences and negative implications or consequences. So the first is organized governments. It doesn't matter what kind of organized government, but an organized government can just be a system of rule and law. Okay, That could be 
a variety of governments we will talk about later. What is positive about forming governments? Well, it protects people from themselves. It protects uh, people from other nations or civilizations. It kind of creates order. It kind of creates predictability. Human beings like routine. I know some of you don't like the bell schedule, but I would love to see how many of you would do in the first semester of college. Because there's no routine, you're more apt to get yourself in trouble. Governments are used for human beings to develop routine forms of behavior so everyone knows exactly what is expected of them. The people that break the rules are going to be punished, and the people that are going to follow the rules will be rewarded. What are some negative implications to this? Well, some people ruling over these people might be bad. So on one hand, you might have a monarchy, which is a government run by a king or a warrior, or you might have a bad king run that. And you can think of that as a tyranny or a tyrannical rule of government, spelled T-Y-R-A-N-N-Y. So it depends on the type of person or system that is ruling people, but it could have significant negative implications such as dictatorships. I'm sure some of you have heard about the dictatorship of the Soviet Union, the dictatorship of uh, Cuba, the dictatorships of Nazi Germany during World War II. These are organized governments, but had a very negative consequence towards uh, their people and humanity at large. What also goes in hand with governments is religion. Religion can also be a organized way to um, make people understand the rules of behavior, the do's and do nots. So because of this, most governments are going to also uh, be intertwined with early religions, such as the Egyptian pharaohs, whom many of the Egyptians thought were descendants of God, right, or the gods. So religion is basically uh, the 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 organized series of rules and regulations that are going to be expressed and enforced by people typically of the priest class. And they're going to be there to make sure that people like governments are going to be organized, there's going to be expectation, there's going to be routine rules of behavior. Mankind in the prehistoric time period, if you crossed a tribe, and you were fighting for a resource, it would not be really immoral to take your, uh, your, your, your club and bash the skull of your enemy. As we become more sophisticated and settled, we understand that at some point, if we just keep bashing each other over the heads, none of us are going to be around to tell about it. So religions are also designed to kind of develop a sense of morality, what is right and what is wrong. Now, here are some negative implications to that. The people that determine what is right or wrong might be wrong. So it follows that the morality or the religions of earlier time periods are not necessarily going to be in the best interests of the people. The religions might be in the best interests of only certain types of people within society. So we have to be aware of that. Even today, there are going to be institutionalized religions that might not be beneficial to certain populations. Next ingredient is infrastructure. 
This is going to be characterized by roads, by uh, irrigation canals, by bridges, uh, basically man-made uh, works that are going to be made to significantly alter the geographical landscape. What are some positive implications? Well, that will increase trade, that will increase communication, that will increase migration. I told you that human beings are a migratory species. That's why we survived and out-survived Neanderthal. Some negative implications? Well, where are these roads being built? Where are these bridges being built? Are they being built adequately. Many times in the early river civilizations, they could not have a good handle on the flooding of rivers, which led to the deaths of thousands, if not millions, of early peoples. So there are going to be negative implications on who is going to determine infrastructure, but we kind of highlight civilizations based on how big their buildings are, how big their bridges are, how big their tunnels are, how big their roads are. I don't have to tell you how many of us would need, really rely on the Long Island Expressway, the Northern State Expressway, to get to school or work um, every day. The next ingredient is what we call job specialization. This basically means putting value on a different variety of jobs. As human beings became more complex and we settled, we did not need everyone to either be hunters or gatherers. At some point, some people had to do other forms of tasks, such as wall building, or pottery making, or rule making, or writing, when we became more complicated with our linguistic systems. And because there are going to be different forms of jobs, here's a lot of good positive things about that. More people are going to be productive in a variety of ways, which will lead to several achievements. We're going to become more efficient as a society, as a species, as a whole. What are some negative implications? Well, who is going to determine the value of these jobs? Not all jobs will be created equal. And the people that are in certain jobs will be respected more than other people in other jobs. And you can see this in today's society. Although it's not right, people tell you all the time that every human being is treated equally. And I 100% agree with this as a Catholic school educator. Let's be real. Society today values uh, jobs such as lawyers and doctors and bankers than garbage sanitation workers, then gardeners, then landscapers. How do I know that? Well, because we provide a salary based on which job we provide more value to. So there are some negative implications on that because it does lead to our next ingredient, social classes. Depending on what kind of job you have, you're most likely going to be put in a social class. What are some positive implications of this? Again, it organizes society. It uh, it, it kind of makes people understand uh, what you are and what you're not. It provides a routine, um, and a system that everyone can get behind. However, it's negative because oftentimes in history, people in the upper class are going to take advantage of people in the lower class. So we have to be very mindful of that. Writing and language. Obviously, the positive implications of that is that you're going to have the spread and proliferation of ideas and business because the early business practices are going to be between basic bartering trade, but as, be as language becomes more complex and writing becomes more complex, 
business contracts will be able to form, which will be more long-standing and beneficial to society in general. Some negative implications, words have power, words have meaning, leaders will utilize rhetoric, uh, priests will write down language that will allow a lot of power and weight behind them, and a lot of people are going to uh, utilize language as a form of power over other people. I have to make a special note for historians. We should be really, really, really happy that human beings have developed a complex form of language because this is where we get our primary and secondary sources from. So although there, it's a double-edged sword, we have to be mindful of the power of language. Finally, art and architecture is an ingredient of civilization, and this is positive because it allows, because the free time of the Neolithic Revolution, people have the time to express themselves, their ideas, and, and that is shown through the buildings they create as well as the particular pieces of artwork they make. Some negative implications, these architectures are going to be uh, formed uh, primarily with people in the upper class at the expense of the lower class. Example, how many slaves had to die to make the pyramids that we see today. So, like all the other ingredients, this is also a double-edged sword. So, the last thing we need to end with is civilizations are like organisms. They are subject to change. There are going to be several effects that might change a civilization. One is the environment or climate which would, as I mentioned before, uh, have an effect on the diet. Sometimes civilizations will might be completely wiped out as a result of some sort of natural disaster, such as a flood or a tsunami or a hurricane or even a volcano, volcanic eruption. So we have to be mindful of that. Cultural diffusion also might change civilizations, either for the good or the bad or both, through a process called cultural diffusion. What is that? It is basically an exchange of ideas between two civilizations. And this exchange usually occurs either through trade or through war. So it does not necessarily have to be peaceful or violent, but cultural diffusion happens when two societies meet with each other and there's an exchange of ideas. Please highlight this. This is a very, very big term to understand as we go on throughout the lesson. Finally, the growth and decline, like all organisms, there is a lifespan, so are civilizations. Usually it follows a very, very similar trajectory. It starts with villages, the population increases into cities, the cities become so large that they become a city-state or a nation, the nations become so large that they start to conquer other nations or other civilizations, which leads to an empire. And eventually the empire becomes so large and so unstable and, un and, and human beings are unwilling or uh, unable to rule such a large tract of land that most empires will fall. And we will study the falling of many empires as we continue through this course. That ends audio lecture one. Please continue on to module two.